Welcome to the Broken Vessels Podcast. Jeremiah 18.4 states, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. This is the Broken Vessels Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Simpkins. This is a podcast where we have discussions on theological themes for the broken to bring encouragement and hope in Christ. And I'd like to welcome you back to the Broken Vessels Podcast. This is episode 13, where we're going to be talking about being broken by the gospel. Uh, you may have heard that term in our episode with Pat Abendroth, where we talked about the blurring of categories, such as the law and the gospel, sanctification, justification. We talked about how blurring these categories and how not understanding proper biblical categories can be very detrimental to our lives and can bring brokenness. Well, we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive today into understanding that blurring or uh, misunderstanding of the difference or distinction between the law and the gospel. And I have a very special guest today. I have Justin Perdue, who is the lead pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. He's also the co-host of Theocast, and you guys have heard us talk about Theocast on this podcast a couple of different times. Uh, Theocast is a reformed media ministry where uh, Justin and his co-host, John Moffat from Spring Hill, Tennessee, they record a weekly podcast, and Justin has also co-authored multiple books, and Justin is married to his wife, Michelle, and they have four children. And I've had the privilege of meeting Justin uh, last spring. Justin and John have both been a huge influence on me and just uh, just have encouraged me in so many ways. And I'm just so thankful that Justin is here with us today. Justin, welcome to the Broken Vessels podcast. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Good to be with you, bro. Justin, you guys on Theocast, you guys have just a way of describing things and talking about um, these different categories and bringing so much hope and encouragement in Christ. And you're just very good at communicating these distinctions and have a very good grasp on the redemptive historical ramifications of all of these things. And so I'm just really thankful that you're here to talk with us today about these topics. And so, brother, can you define for our listeners the difference or the distinction between the law and the gospel? I will certainly give it a shot. So the way I would begin to answer this question, I'm going to answer it simply, and then we can unpack any of this in more detail the ways that you want to. Sure. I'll follow your lead on that. Sure. Define simply anything that we read of in the scriptures that tells us what we are to do in order to be righteous before God. That would be defined as law. Anything in Scripture where we read what God gives us that Jesus has accomplished, that we receive passively by faith, that's gospel. Simple ways to remember this. Do is law. Done is gospel. The law says do this and live. The gospel says Christ has done it all. Now live in him. Mm -hmm. And 
a lot of times people get confused with these categories a number of different ways. We're going to talk about the collapsing of the categories in a minute. But a number of Christians in our context, Josh, have been taught that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. And that's very unhelpful because, biblically speaking, there is law and gospel in the Old Testament, and there is law and gospel in the New Testament. And I think my definitions that I just gave a minute ago make it clear as to how that's the case. Yeah, so very simply, again, to reiterate for the listener, especially if these things are new for you, anything that we read of in Scripture that tells us what we are to do, works that we are to do in order to be righteous before God, that's law. Anything that we read of that has been done for us by Christ that God then gives us that we receive by faith, that's gospel. So we talk about this distinction. We're talking about how uh, the law and the gospel are these separate categories, right? So, sure. you know, many times, like I, I know, like in my past... Separate, and, not contradictory. Right. right. They work together and complement one another, complement with an E, complement one another in God's economy of salvation. I know you agree. I'm just making that clarification for the listener. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so, you know, I used to, when I would talk about the gospel, when I mm-hmm. didn't understand it as well as by God's grace, I understand it now. You would hear a lot of people talk about how the gospel crushes us, mm. that that Jesus Christ, and, and many times what what uh, people will do is they'll say, well, Christ is the 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 stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, and see, mm-hmm. so Christ, you know, the gospel of you Christ. You just let me know when you want me to riff on that for a you minute. Riff on it, brother. <laughs> All right, so in calling Jesus that, I mean, the most pointed place to go is Romans chapter 10. Right. Right. So Paul there is speaking of the Israelites, and he is saying, beginning in Romans 9, actually, I said Romans 10. It's Romans 9, end of Romans 9 into Romans 10. So beginning in Romans 9, 30, Paul says, what shall we say then? And then he answers his own question, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? He says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's citing Isaiah 28, 16. Mm -hmm. Romans 10, 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Israelites, is that they they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There are a number of ways that that's true of him, because he came saying things about himself, obviously, that offended his Jewish audience left and right. He claimed to be the Son of Man. He claimed to be God the Son. He claimed to be the Christ and the Messiah. He wasn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. We could talk about that some other time. But he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, in particular for people who are seeking to establish their own righteousness under the law. Mm. Right? That's clearly how Paul understands it and uses Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen in Romans 9 and 10. And he's t- contrasting the Gentiles and the Jews, and he's saying that the Gentiles— those elect Gentiles who are being saved are being saved precisely because they have submitted to God's righteousness. They have attained righteousness by faith in Christ, whereas the Israelites have not because, yeah, they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, and they've sought to establish their own righteousness under the law, which can't be done. 
and they have stumbled over Christ, who is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes in him. Amen. Amen. Yeah. As you explain that, it's almost exactly the opposite (laughs) of what people normally think of when they think of Christ being that rock of stumbling uh, or uh, a rock of offense or stone of stumbling. So why is it that a misunderstanding or a blurring of these two categories of law and gospel, smashing it together, making it gospel, which I believe was coined by Michael Horton, um, why is it that not by blurring these two categories and by misunderstanding them and misapplying them, how, how is it that that brings so much brokenness in a believer's life? Yeah, I mean, this is the million-dollar question, I guess, when it comes to life on earth and boots on the ground, right? We may back up in a minute and talk about some more formal categories, but I'll I'll start to answer this question now. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this in various ways for the rest of our time together. When the law and the gospel are collapsed— in short, it robs the believer of any possibility of assurance. Um, that's the basic answer, because what ends up happening is in various ways, you weave works, works of the law, back into the, the fabric of justification and, and salvation. And so whenever you do that, inevitably, believers are going to be pointed back in on themselves and their obedience as a piece of their righteousness before the Lord. It no longer is about what Christ has accomplished wholesale. Christ is no longer our whole and only righteousness, to use the language of the Westminster Confession and the Second London Confession, for example. We now are looking to Christ, yes, but we're also looking to our own obedience and our own works of the law as at least a portion of what will finally save us in the end. And I trust that for the thoughtful listener, I don't really need to go further in explaining how damaging that is. Because anybody with a tender conscience, anyone who has an awareness of the depth of his or her own corruption, is going to know that everything that he or she does is tainted with sin. And in understanding God's holiness and thereby the holiness of his law and the perfect requirements of the law, we're going to measure what we do to that standard and see how woefully short we fall. And so then we have no hope. Ultimately, we have no hope, no peace before God, because we're always asking those nagging questions. Have I done enough? Have I done it well enough? And of course, no one can define those standards, right? What is well enough? What is enough? Because the scripture doesn't speak in these terms. Biblically speaking, when it comes to God's law, it's perfection or it's nothing. So then this, this kind of all right, you're justified by faith in Christ, and now you need to obey the law as a part of your final salvation. But it's this half-baked obedience because it's not perfect. Nobody's going to say that we can be perfect. I mean, very few people are going to say we can be perfect this side of the resurrection. So our motivations are always mixed. Our, our thoughts, our desires are always tainted with sin. Nobody's ever done a perfect deed, right, because of the corruption of the flesh. Mm -hmm. And we just end up reasoning ourselves into all kinds of corners. And we have to do gymnastics with a number of passages in the Bible to try to help people make sense of these things. And we could talk about a number of these texts maybe here in a minute. Sure. But the short answer is whenever you collapse the law and the gospel, it's damning because nobody can keep the law adequately for righteousness. And if keeping the law, even in some measure— 
for a piece of our final salvation is required, then none of us have any hope before God. Yeah, that's so true. One one thing that I've uh, heard you say often and even seen you post on social media, and it's it, it's so good, and it just completely and totally explains why there needs to be a difference between the law and the gospel. I've, I've seen you say the law demands everything and provides nothing, yeah. and the gospel provides everything and demands nothing. <laughs> Amen, dude. Now, I get shot at for that quite a bit. I bet. <laughs> I'm going to reiterate what you just said. I almost said this earlier, but I figured that I would save it. You know, when I was doing some of the kind of cliche, catchy, helpful phrases like law is due, gospel is done. Right. The law says do this and live. That's Leviticus 18.5, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the gospel says Christ has done it and now live in him. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I do think is very helpful is this paradigm that you just you read. I mean, I've put this up before. Yeah, the law demands everything and gives nothing. What do we mean by that? Well, the standard is perfection. There is no room for any kind of disobedience in any way if we're going to be justified according to the law. And so we're talking about the law here as a covenant of works for justification. That's what we mean. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I need to explain all those terms, but whenever we're talking about the law and gospel distinction, we're talking about the law in terms of obedience to it for righteousness. Right. In other words, like Adam in the garden was given a covenant to keep, we're talking about the law in those terms, where we would need to obey it perfectly without any shred of disobedience or even mixed motivation in order to merit righteousness before God through the law. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's why I say it that way. The law demands everything and gives nothing. There is no mercy. There's no grace in the law. There's no grading on a curve. You must be perfect, Mm -hmm. just like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5, 48. Right. But then on the flip, the gospel gives everything and demands nothing, meaning demands nothing of us. It gives us everything. How so? Because Jesus, not only has he died an atoning death, not only is he the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, I think we're pretty good on that piece, Mm -hmm. but the active obedience of Jesus Christ, the fact that he lived a perfect life under the law, and he kept the law perfectly. He obeyed his father's every word at every moment. And his righteousness under the law, his perfect obedience is counted to us as our righteousness and as our obedience by faith. And so what we mean by saying the gospel grants or gives everything is the gospel gives us everything that we could ever need for righteousness before God now and forever. And it demands nothing of us in that we don't do anything in order to have that righteousness. We receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. We are passive in it. And people will say, well, you know, don't we need to believe? Well, yes, we do. But what is faith? Faith, by definition, is a looking away from oneself and receiving, trusting, accepting, resting in the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ. Amen. And as it says in Ephesians, it is a gift of God, not by works, lest any of us should boast. No, amen, brother. Well, brother, you know, we've kind of touched on the the differences between it. You've explained it very well. But I'm sure that people are thinking, you know, you guys are talking about all this theoretical, theological stuff, and I don't really completely understand how that really translates into my life. 
uh, how, you know, I mean, to a degree, you kind of talked about how it can steal away our assurance. It can take away joy. I'll just go ahead and go. I anticipate where you're headed. Sure. Like, how does this affect me yeah. as a Christian, you know, Tuesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday afternoon, whenever you're listening to this podcast, right? right. How does a confusion and a collapsing of the law and the gospel affect me? A number of ways. I've already said that it erodes any possibility of assurance. I trust that's plain because anybody with a conscience whatsoever is going to realize that we never, ever live up to the standard of the law, even if it's just required of us a little bit. That's a damning reality for me. And so, therefore, I'm always going to be living in fear before God. I'm not going to be, you know, Romans 8 13 to 15, I really am going to be acting as though I've been given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, right? And instead of understanding that I've been given the spirit of adoption through which I call God Father, he's no longer my judge, he's my father. Right. And I'm not, I'm not going to live as though he's my father. I'm going to live at least at times as though he's my judge. Or at best, I'm going to be schizophrenic, right? Where I, sometimes he's my father, sometimes he's my judge, and I'm not really sure. It's going to affect how I think of the Lord all the time. And as has been said before, what we think when we think about God is the most important thing we could ever think. So there's that. But then I, th- I think what happens a lot of times for us when the, the law and the gospel is collapsed, you hear this phrase, I'm going to say it, and we'll unpack this a little bit. How many times have you heard people talk about the quote unquote demands of the gospel? All the time. <laughs> All the time. And you get this in a number of different presentations. You get this in the Lordship Salvation Camp. So some of the things that uh, most notably John MacArthur has written and said over the years. Um, mm-hmm. You get this also in John Piper, you know, in the Christian hedonism, for example, his book, What Jesus Demands of the World, you know, where he goes through the Gospels and just takes phrases, sentences, teachings of Christ as to what is required of man. And there's, this is a representation of law and gospel confusion. Mm-hmm. And so whenever we use that language, the demands of the gospel, again, what is the tender-hearted believer going to do with that? What is the believer with a tender conscience going to do with that? Well, he or she is going to hear about the demands of the gospel, and the conclusion is going to be, I fail. I don't do what I need to do clearly. And so I suppose that the gospel is the free offer of salvation to all men, but not for me. And it produces all kinds of discouragement, despair, hopelessness, and I think sometimes for people, if they were honest, anger toward God, yeah. frustration, right? I mean, you can remember Martin Luther. I mean, he, he said the quiet part out loud, right? He said, sometimes, like, I hate God mm-hmm. because effectively his holiness and his righteousness is my death sentence. These are the things that I think are produced in the hearts of many believers across this land and around the globe even who have been sitting under or only ever been exposed to law and gospel confusion rather than a right teaching of the law and the gospel. If I may, I want to clarify some more categories for folks. Sure. um, Just to try to help people understand this a little bit better, if possible. Yeah. So when we talk about the law, historically speaking, particularly in the Reformed world, and also in the Lutheran world too, we understand that the law has various uses. So this matters for this conversation. I, I trust this will be plain. The first use of the law historically understood is... The law is used as a mirror, right? It's the standard of righteousness that God has revealed. And when we look to the law and then look at ourselves in light of the law, we see how woefully short we fall. Mm -hmm. And we're crushed by the law 
and we're driven to Christ who has kept it for us. That is the first and greatest use of the law. The law was not given in a fallen world, right? So I'm talking Genesis 3 on. The law was not given through Moses to Israel to be kept for righteousness. That was not the reason God gave it. Paul's very clear about this in Galatians 3, Romans 5, etc. The apostles unpack this very well. The law was given first and foremost to crush us in our sin and drive us to the Messiah who Mm -hmm. would keep it for us and who would satisfy the wrath of God against our sin and would make atonement for us. But then the second use of the law is a broad civil use. It, It curbs our corruption because God tells us what's good and bad and right and wrong, and he promises blessing for keeping the law and threatens punishment for breaking it. And so that curbs human corruption. Third use of the law in Christ Jesus for the saints is to guide our living. The law is no longer threatening to the Christian, but it is God's moral law is the perfect guide for our lives. How do we know what goodness is? How do we know what righteousness looks like? How do we know what we should pursue? How do we know what we should flee from? Well, we look to the law, not as a threat, not as condemnation, but as a guide. And so those categories are important because when we're talking about the law and the gospel distinction and we're talking about how the law crushes us, we're talking about the first use of it. And so I just want that to be clear in, in the minds of the listeners. You know, I heard a, <laughs> I heard a pastor say the other day that um, we as Christians, uh, as we grow in sanctification, which, um, again, that's another category, sanctification as opposed sure. to justification, and that's another thing that gets blurred in conjunction with law and gospel being blurred as well, said that, you know, a, a Christian who is truly growing in the Lord is is going to continue to grow, and they may sin occasionally. <laughs> and I just thought to myself when yeah, I heard that— uh, yeah, I just thought to myself when I heard that, I'm like, how many times did you sin right as soon as your feet hit the floor, like in mind right. and, and, right. and in thought and even in deed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, brother, if I may, let's, and I know we can get to some other like practical application stuff. Let's, if, if you're willing, let's think about a few passages of scripture. Sure. That for various reasons, some of these are going to be passages that are often confused where I think we can help people see. Uh, just a better way to understand the scriptures. Yeah. But then uh, I want to begin first before that with Matthew chapter five in response to what you just said, how Christians are going to be growing in sanctification and will sin occasionally. That's problematic on a number of levels because, for example, in Matthew chapter five, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is the greatest sermon on the law ever preached. And it is not a gospel sermon until you get to chapter seven, where Jesus is going to then begin to talk about, for example, at the very end, the rock upon which we will build the house. And that rock is him. Now there's all kinds of confusion there where people act like the rock upon which we're going to build our house is our own obedience. That's problematic on a number of levels. What he's doing in that sermon, especially in Matthew five is he is preaching the law to the human heart, the way that it always should have been understood. And he's doing this kind of first use of the law stuff to crush us in our sin, right? And to drive us to him who came in his own words to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so he says that he did not come beginning in Matthew five seventeen. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he says that not any portion of the law, and here he's talking about the moral law very clearly, in other words, the Ten Commandments, right? None of these things should be loosened or removed. And then he says to this audience of Jewish people, you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is a mind blow, right? Because these were the experts on the law and the righteous ones of their day. He then begins to talk about various commandments. He says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. Well, I'm telling you, if you have anger in your heart toward your brother, you're liable to the fires of hell. 
What's he saying? That even, yeah, you may be in some kind of external conformity sense. You might be conforming to the law, but you in your heart and mind have broken the law and you stand condemned. He then does the same thing with adultery. You've said, you've heard it said it should, you shouldn't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you've lusted after someone, you're guilty. What's the point of that, Josh? It's that you think you're doing well in conforming your life to the law. And in reality, you fall so far short. And so this is what I would want to say to the person that says, well, you know, for Christians, we should just sin occasionally. And I'm like, look, the corruption of the flesh is real, guys. Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk about this. I mean, we could go a number of places here. Again, Matthew 5, 48, where does, how does Jesus conclude this portion of his sermon? He says that you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So the only kind of law keeping that merits anything in God's sight is perfection. But then think Romans chapter 7, where believers delight in God's law in our inner man. We've been born again. We've been given a heart of flesh. Our heart of stone has been removed. We're now new creations in Christ Jesus. And so for the first time, we actually delight in God's law. And by the way, only a person who has been forgiven, justified, and absolved of guilt could ever say such a thing, because no one who is damned by the law could ever delight in it. You don't delight in what's your death sentence. All this to say, Paul in Romans 7 makes it very plain that even though we delight in the law of God in our inner man, there is another law that wages war against our spirit. And we often find ourselves not doing what we want to do and doing the things that we don't want to do. And so my, I would just immediately push back against that person that says a Christian only sins occasionally. I think the apostles say different. And I think Jesus says different as well in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless you're telling me that your thoughts, your motivations, your desires, and your actions are perfect most of the time, I don't even know what you mean by saying that you only sin occasionally. Have you ever loved God? For example, what's the first and greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. My question to every believer out there, have you ever done that for even five minutes? And the answer is, of course, no, Mm -mm. because I want to, I desire to, but because of the corruption of my flesh, because of my frame, I've never really done it. And so again, we have to ask these questions. How is a person righteous in the sight of God? And then what does it look like to live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us? We're going to pursue obedience from the heart, Romans 6, 17, right? We've been delivered from the tyranny and the dominion of sin, amen. We're no longer under the law to be condemned by it. We're under grace. We've been united to Christ. We will be conformed into his image, praise God. Mm -hmm. And this progression in this life will not be onward and upward always. It won't be clean and linear really ever. And we will always have deeds that are mixed and tainted with sin. And so we're always looking outside of ourselves to Christ for our peace and our hope and our righteousness. And that, is, that includes on the backside of regeneration. And we have to be really clear about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when, when I really first began to understand, you know, this whole idea of the act of obedience of Christ being my sure. righteousness and just understanding what union with Christ meant, man, that brought so much liberty and so much freedom to understand that I didn't have to do it anymore. Christ has already done it for me. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that's why this law and gospel distinction is so important for you to understand, because the gospel should only bring freedom to us. That's the whole point of it. I've been to Justin's church, and they have a liturgy there in the way that they, they, they set up their service. There's the reading of the law, and the law, it does crush us. It, it, it exposes our sin. It, it shows us who we truly are, wretched, fallen people that are needy. And then what happens? Then 
we hear the gospel. That's our absolution. That's the thing that tells us Christ did it for you. Mm-hmm. Run to him. Look to him. No, amen. Cast yourself upon him. Yeah, amen, dude. I mean, so a few a few passages, if I may. I'll do these quickly. I'm not even going to turn. I'm just going to summarize sure. these that are examples of how the law and the gospel are very often confused, just again, practically in the life of the believer. How many times have we heard preachers talk like this? And I mean, think about the ramifications of these things. I mean, low hanging fruit, the rich young man, you know, Matthew 19, man comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, Jesus immediately says, you know, why do you call me good? Because the man addresses him as good teacher. And why do you call me good? Only God is good. Implication, no fallen human being is good. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Right. So what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, we'll keep the commandments. And the man asks which ones. And Jesus recites several from the Decalogue, from the Ten Commandments. And the young man says to Jesus, well, I've done this. I've kept them since my youth. To which Jesus responds, all right, one thing you still lack. And then he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. If you're going to be perfect, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is Jesus doing in that moment? Because what we have often heard explained to us is that to surrender all for Jesus is what is required of us in order to be saved. Or surrender all to Christ is the good news because that's what Jesus is telling this guy. If you're willing to give away everything for me and follow me, then you can be perfect. You can be saved. In reality, what Jesus is doing in that moment is he is turning up the temperature of the law and dumping the full weight of the law on that young man's conscience. That young man is claiming to have perfectly loved God and perfectly loved neighbor by keeping the law his whole life. And so then Jesus says, okay, prove it. Prove that you love God with all your heart and that you love your neighbor as yourself by selling everything you have, giving it to the poor and following me. And the man can't do it. To which the disciples respond, this should be the dead giveaway. When Jesus starts to say, it's more difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? The disciples freak out because under old covenant paradigms, material blessing was a result of law keeping. Mm -hmm. And so they say, well, who can be saved? They're shocked. And Jesus responds, well, with man, it's impossible, but with God, it's possible. Mm. And so that's a, a law and gospel passage. It's not this collapsing of the two categories where you need to do this, you need to surrender all for God to be saved. That's not the the message. The message is you need to not look to your own righteousness, you know, because you have not perfectly loved God and neighbor, and you need to trust the one who's done it. Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. How many times have we heard this applied to people, that we need to be loving neighbor sacrificially in order to be God's child, Mm -hmm. and you need to be willing to do what the Good Samaritan did, or you're not legitimate? Well, how does that passage begin? There's a scribe, a lawyer that comes to Jesus and uh, and asks and ask Jesus another question, right? I mean, he says, I'm just going to, I am going to flip to this one because I think the language here is so important in terms of setting up the law and the gospel and even thinking about how Jesus understood the requirements of the law. So a lawyer stands up to test Jesus. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The man responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. That is Leviticus 18.5. That Mm -hmm. is law. Do this and you will live. So then the man desiring to justify himself, according to what, Josh? According to the law, right? Right. Says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the first point, the greatest point of the parable of the Good Samaritan 
is to crush this man in his desire to justify himself according to the law. Because Jesus depicts the Good Samaritan, you know, this, this religious and ethnic half-breed, that's offensive, but he depicts this Good Samaritan who goes above and beyond to love his neighbor in a way that is mind-blowing and paints that picture of here's what it looks like to love your neighbor according to the law. Have you done this? Right? I mean, that's the question we should be asking. Have, has anybody done this? No. No one has done this. Right? So even there, you have this, this man coming, seeking to justify himself according to the law, and Jesus says, do this and you'll live. Problem is, you haven't done it, man. You're trying to justify yourself according to works. Secondarily, takeaway from the Good Samaritan, yeah, we can look at it and say, yeah, I want a desire to love my neighbor, and I want to love him sacrificially, but I can't do it for righteousness. Lastly, Romans chapter 2. I'll do this quickly. Many are familiar with this section. Beginning in Romans 2.1, Paul makes quite plain. You judge other people that commit sins, most likely the ones talked about in Romans 1, you know, they're at the end of Romans 1. You judge people who practice these things, but do you realize that in passing judgment on them, you condemn yourself because you do the same stuff? And then he goes on to say that, do you not realize that the forbearance and the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? And then he goes on to say that God is a good and righteous judge who shows no partiality. He rewards those who do good with eternal life. He punishes those who do evil with wrath and condemnation. Then he goes on to say that there is the doers of the law, not the hearers of the law only who will be justified. Now, what do guys often do with that text? They will say things like this. You know, it's mysterious. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But even here, according to the apostle Paul, it seems as though our works factor into our final salvation. Now, again, pause. Any tender conscience, any well-meaning saint in the room who hears somebody say that is going to say, well, good grief. I, I, I haven't done enough. I know I haven't. I've fallen short left and right. I disappoint myself. God has to be disappointed in me. you know. And so we start to think in these terms, when in reality, what we need to realize is that in the flow of Paul's argumentation, Romans 1 to 3, Paul's setting it up that there is salvation found in one place, and salvation will never be found by looking to yourself according to the law. Every man stands guilty. Every man is a sinner. Yes, it's true that God rewards those who do good. The problem is no one is good, which is why a righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ for everyone who believes. So these are just some examples of how these categories are mashed together so often in various ways that robs the saints of assurance and peace and hope, and I fear produces despair or hopelessness on the one hand, can lead some who are deluded into self-righteousness, and then on the other hand can even produce anger and frustration and bitterness toward the Lord because you're constantly thinking, I can't live up to the standards of this taskmaster. When in reality, God is our loving Father who has provided everything in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, trying to live that way is just exhausting. It's exhausting. It wears you out, man. It really does. And I don't know anything worse than trying and trying and trying and having no peace and no comfort, no assurance. And then, you know, again, where does that drive a person? You either despair and punt the faith, potentially, or you are angry with God and punt the faith that way. Uh, now, the Lord keeps his own, Josh. I mean, we don't need to get into all that, but mm-hmm. it's, it's terrible, the fallout of these things. You're practically ready to deny the faith if it were not for the fact that you can't walk away from Jesus. No, he's holding yeah. on to you even when Amen. you're not holding on Amen. to him. <laughs> 
Well, brother, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you so much coming on to the Broken Vessels podcast and sharing with our listeners. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this hamster wheel, as I often talk about it, and I've heard uh, many yeah, others, and ju- yeah, too. Justin and John have talked about the hamster wheel of you're just kind of running and, and, and you're putting all this effort into your life and into your faith and you're just not getting anywhere. Inevitably, when we blur the law and the gospel, that's really what we're doing. We're just running and running and running, but we're not getting anywhere. When really, truly, all we have to do is just stop and look to Christ who already did it for us. <laughs> yeah, amen, dude. And that just brings so much peace and so much hope. And, you know, Justin shared with us, you know, this distinction between um, the f- first and the third use of the law. You know, the law mm-hmm. is a guide for our lives. And, and we've talked about, we talked about that on um, another episode it is a guide for our lives, and it is something that we desire. The psalmist talked about in Psalm 119, your law is something that I desire. It's, I love your law. And, and, and we do, because it's good. It, it's, it, it displays the character of God. It, sh- it, it should be something that we look at with joy and thankfulness, not with fear. Mm-hmm. And as a believer, right? A hundred percent, right? I mean, and th- this again is where the understanding that Jesus has met all of the requirements of the law for righteousness, and he has satisfied its punishment. So he's fulfilled its requirements, and he's fulfilled its punishment for us in our place as our representative. So all of that is over for us. In terms of keeping it for righteousness, that's done. In terms of bearing its punishment as a lawbreaker, that's done. And so now we can look to the law as good because it is good Mm. and we can delight in it and we can seek to conform our lives to it by the spirit, not for merit, not to escape punishment, but because it is good, because we're grateful, because we have joy, because we love the Lord, because it's good for our neighbor, Mm. right? We can pursue it for all of those good God honoring reasons. When in reality, I think if we're pursuing conformity unto the law for some kind of righteousness before the Lord, we're doing exactly what we just, what we started this conversation talking about. We're doing exactly what the Israelites did that Paul says was foolish, zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And we're seeking to establish some kind of righteousness on our own, which is a fool's errand. We look to Christ always for that. And this is how people, Josh, last comment, maybe from me, I know we're trying to to land this conversation, there's a reason why many believers can never look to the law as a good thing. We can only think of the law as a bad thing because we always feel threatened and condemned by it. Mm -hmm. Whereas a right understanding of the law and the gospel, the work of Christ, and even that third use of the law that is not condemning, it changes the game as to how we think about the law. And it makes all kinds of passages in the scripture make sense. You've alluded to some of them. But it's incredibly helpful for our lives because now we can pursue obedience and we can strive after living in accord with God's law, but we're not motivated by fear and dread. We're motivated by other things. Yeah. Amen. And I would also say that once we have this understanding and we can see these categories in their proper places, man, like you said, it's a game changer. Because it, it, the, the Spirit comes in and He does begin to conform your life to Christ, and and and, and again, it's not uh, it's not something that you're doing 
where you're looking at yourself and like, oh, am I ticking off all the boxes? Am I am I measuring up? You know, I, I you know, I used to hear the whole, you know, Christ is our measuring stick thing, you know, and <laughs> and it's like, dude, if Christ is my measuring stick, I'm never going to measure up, <laughs> you know. Right, right. I mean, Christ isn't our example, certainly um, of of, uh, but he's he's not really as much our example as he is our substitute. (laughs) Well, and if he's, if he's not first our representative and our substitute, then him as our example is damning because none of us can ever live up to, to what Christ did. And so, yeah, in a secondary sense, he is our example. And we seek that this is first John three, you know, everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who hopes in him for salvation seeks to purify himself as he is pure. Amen. Amen. But it's only in hoping in him for salvation that we could ever seek to live after Christ. Right. Well, brother, I appreciate you coming on our podcast and and sharing the good word of the gospel uh, with our listeners today. Hey, Justin, um, would you like to shout anything out before we uh, finish our conversation here today? I appreciate you having me on, Josh, and I hope that this conversation has been of some encouragement to the listener. And the main exhortation is just to always look to Christ for your righteousness and for your peace before the Lord. That's something that we have to hear regularly and remind ourselves of regularly because the world and certainly the evil one preaches a very different word. I certainly would commend all of our content over on Theocast for the listener if you're not familiar yet. If you're interested in hearing any of the the sermons that I preach on a regular basis, you could go to our church's website. That's covbap.org. I've begun a series through Romans recently, and that's been a real joy. So uh, those are some resources people could look into. Uh, Other than that, uh, trust Christ and seek to love your brothers and sisters and, and calm down in that. Jesus really has accomplished everything that you need. So rest in him. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for the Broken Vessels podcast, and we'll see you next week. 